If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for September 1st, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is Free Speech Broadcasting. That's where you can find all of the past episodes of the World According to Zig podcast as well as my most recent articles, including the eight-part series that I just completed for Mediate about the history of the news media's decline in credibility and the rise of Donald Trump to the presidency of the United States of America. As is always the case, I also urge you to check out uh, the other podcast that I do, the Individual One podcast, which deals directly with the presidency of Donald Trump. So make sure you uh, go and check that out. You can do so via freespeechbroadcasting.com and by Twitter feed, which is at Zygmunt Freud. Lots to get to on this episode of the World According to Zig podcast, the latest in the never-ending ne- Leaving Neverland saga, including what Dave Chappelle did to blow up the narrative this week. Uh, a major update on my quest for the uh, truth to finally come out in the so-called Penn State scandal. I had to tell you about me going through uh, sexual harassment training as part of uh, an obligatory (laughs) legal circumstance regarding my job at Mediate, having nothing to do with uh, me having (laughs) created the situation to be forced to do it. This is mandatory for all people who uh, work there, but it was an extraordinary experience and one that I have to share with you. Also, uh, the the revelation this week about uh, former Los Angeles uh, Angels Uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim pitcher Tyler Skaggs and how he ended up dying and how uh, I think this tells an awful lot about uh, some of the problems we have in in uh, in evaluating how someone dies and whether or not they ought to be a hero. Uh, The start of college football. uh, We got Hurricane Darian bearing down on Florida and uh, new warnings about global warming. So we'll get to all that. But we'll start as we have much of this year. with this uh, amazing story of the Disney film Leaving Neverland, we were at the forefront of deconstructing what is clearly a fantasy film about uh, two allegations against Michael Jackson for child sex abuse by uh, Wade Robson and by James Safechuck. And there was a major development this week. In fact, might be the most major development. And the fact that it's such a big deal, I think... Forgetting whether you even care at all about Michael Jackson or leaving Neverland, it might tell us a lot about our society and uh, where we are headed with specifically with regard to our media. And I'll explain why in a moment. It'll be obvious as we go through this. But what I'm referring to is some statement ma- statements made by comedian Dave Chappelle, a legendary uh, black comedian who just came out with a brand new Netflix special. And Chappelle... You know he's he's brilliant. Uh, he's gone through some personal uh, turmoil. He has uh, always been a fan of Jackson and a sometimes defender of Jackson. And in this Netflix special, he really lets it all hang out with regard to his views on leaving Neverland. And the bottom line is, he does not believe 
the accusers. And he makes it very clear, although there's some in the media that are still trying to pretend that that's not really what he meant, although he couldn't be uh, more clear. But that's how desperate the news media is to hold on to their narrative. They don't want to have anybody who is uh, famous say anything that disrupts this idea that uh, they were right to blindly and in a knee-jerk, rush-to-judgment fashion believe this four-hour fantasy film that Dan Reed put out on HBO. So Dave Chappelle uh, does his Netflix special, and he goes on for several minutes about uh, Leaving Neverland, the allegations against Michael Jackson. Now, he does so in a way that uh, at times is funny, at times is really very crude. Uh, We're not going to play the whole bit, but there's two key elements. The one that's gotten the most publicity is where he just flat flat out says he does not believe uh, those who are accusing Michael Jackson in Leaving Neverland, and he does so in about as clear-cut a way as possible. And here's what that sounded like. Michael Jackson has been dead for 10 years, and this has two new cases. I'm going to say something that I'm not allowed to say. But I got to be real. Uh, I don't believe these motherfuckers. I do not believe them. Let me qualify the statement. I, I am what's known on the streets as a victim blamer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Somebody come up to me like, Dave, Dave, Chris Brown just beat up Rihanna. I'll be like, well, what did she do? <laughs> Dave, Michael Jackson was molesting children. Well, what were those kids wearing at the time? think he did it. All right. Now, it's important to understand how comedy is done, especially Dave Chappelle's comedy. It is my interpretation that the very beginning of that clip is him expressing his editorial opinion that he does not believe them. He he is confident that they are lying. And it seems to me as if he's done some thinking and maybe some research about this to come to that conclusion. The part in the middle where he jokes about Rihanna and basically makes it sound like, well, even if they did do, even if Michael Jackson did do it, maybe it's not his fault because these kids, you know, hilariously, I guess, in his mind, uh, might have been wearing something provocative. It is that part that some people have latched on to to say, well, wait a minute, Dave Chappelle isn't saying that Michael Jackson's innocent. Uh, he's saying that even if he did it, it doesn't matter. No, 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 no. You need to separate what is the substantive real opinion part with what is him doing comedy. He sets up the comedy part by giving his very controversial uh, opinion, which is against the conventional wisdom. And we know that because he ends that clip by saying, I don't think he did it. So that's the part where you know, all right, he's, he's making it very clear. He's clarifying, hey, look, I just did a comedy bit based upon the notion that this didn't happen. And I'm going to I'm going to bookend the comedy with my opinion up front, and then I'm going to once again verify I don't think he did it. And that couldn't be more clear, although, again, some in the media are trying to pretend that that's not really what he said or that that's not what he really meant, including uh, Dan Reed, the director. I'll get to that and his reaction momentarily. Dan Reed decided to focus on another clip from this Dave Chappelle Netflix documentary where Dave Chappelle starts to joke about the concept of a boy being molested by Michael Jackson at the height of his fame, where he was the most famous person in the world, and it probably wasn't even close. And to me, this is pretty obvious what Chappelle is doing, but maybe it needs a little bit of setup for those that aren't that bright, like Dan Reed. And uh, the reality is he's exposing the absurdity. He's making fun of the absurdity. Not He's not making fun of child sexual abuse. He's making fun of the absurdity that someone at this age, at this time period, could be molested by Michael Jackson and never tell anybody about it. And here's what that sounded like. The audio is not quite as good because we had to lift this 
uh, from, uh, I guess, from Twitter. Was it from Twitter? Yeah, we, we lifted it from Twitter because Netflix has been very aggressive in knocking down any YouTube videos uh, of a Dave Chappelle special. But this is uh, Dave Chappelle uh, mocking the idea that a boy could be molested by Michael Jackson in this way and never mention this to anybody for many, 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 many years. I know more than half the people in this room have been molested in their lives. But it wasn't no goddamn Michael Jackson, was it? This kid got his dick sucked by the king of pop. All we get is awkward thanksgivings for the rest of our lives. You know how good it must have felt to go to school the next day after that shit? Hey, Billy, how was the weekend? How was my weekend? <laughs> Michael Jackson sucks my dick. <laughs> and that was my first sexual experience. If I'm starting here, then well, sky's the limit. seems harsh, but man, somebody's got to teach these kids. There's no such thing as a free trip to Hawaii. <laughs> he's going to want to look at your butthole or something. You know why I don't believe it? You know why I don't believe it? Because if Michael Jackson's out here doing all this molesting, then why not Macaulay Culkin? Mm-hmm. Macaulay Culkin said in an interview that Michael Jackson never did anything inappropriate with him or even around him. Think about that shit. You know, I'm not a pedophile. But if I was, Macaulay Culkin's the first kid I'm fucking. I'll tell you that right now. a goddamn hero. Hey, that guy over there fucks a kid from home alone. And you know how hard he is to catch. All right, so that's the essence of the Dave Chappelle Netflix uh, comedy special. Believe it or not, we didn't even play for you the crudest uh, elements of that. Um, And again, it's important to point out that what Chappelle is doing there, he is using the Michael Jackson allegations as a way of doing a comedy bit while bookending it with his actual real opinions, making it very clear once again there that he does not believe this and he does not believe these lying MFers. Now, um, this had a major impact, a major impact on the public narrative. Now, it didn't get massive media uh, publicity, but it certainly was well known within the entertainment community. And I don't know for sure, but this had to have helped. But they had the MTV uh, Music Awards uh, this week, and the Dave Chappelle comments had already been known on social media. And it had to have helped uh, the the fact that uh, numerous artists were interviewed, I believe by Yahoo. Yeah, it was by Yahoo News uh, on the red carpet of the MTV Music Awards, and universally – All of them, and most of them were black artists, were supporting Michael Jackson. And some were even going as far as Dave Chappelle to call these guys liars and doing so with profanity. And I talk about this a lot in every story. People need cover to tell an unpopular or dangerous, toxic truth. And Dave Chappelle has provided cover, at least within elements of the entertainment industry. And that matters. And we're living in this very strange age, and I'm not happy about this because I wish that we didn't have to rely on entertainers to be the ones that actually tell us unpopular truths. But the news media will no longer do this. The news media, if a story is too toxic, no matter what the truth really is, they're never going to take that chance because they have too much to lose and nothing really to gain, especially if there's not a massive audience for the truth. Now, in this case, there is a massive audience for the truth because Michael Jackson fans 
are millions strong, and they have been adamant that he is innocent, and so they're starving for the truth. So this situation is slightly different than the norm and some others that I've been involved with, including the Penn State case. But Chappelle gives cover to people. People gravitate towards entertainers, and it's now entertainers who have more influence sometimes, oftentimes, uh, in what people are going to feel is a respectable opinion and what they feel provides them cover to say themselves something that they don't perceive to be unpopular. You know, I, I, in a moment, I'm going to talk about the fact that there's a new book coming out by Malcolm Gladwell that in a rational world vindicates all of my work on the Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky case. And in a rational world, that's exactly what you would want because Malcolm Gladwell is an intellectual. He's highly respected. Uh, uh, even within the media, although now, now he's starting to get a little bit of media blowback, but he's he's well read, millions of readers, a very popular podcast, very well respected, and somebody if he says, "Look, this controversial opinion is not only respectable, but it, it looks like it's right," then that should have weight. Well, it's awesome that Malcolm Gladwell is doing this. We'll see how awesome it is maybe in the next couple of weeks. But the reality is, you know what? As, as, as nice as it is for Malcolm Gladwell to, to take a look at my work and go, look, Ziegler's on to something here. Frankly, it would have more impact if Kim Kardashian did it. If Kim Kardashian tweeted that I'm right about uh, Penn State, uh, Joe Paterno, and Jerry Sandusky, and if, God forbid, it was retweeted by Donald Trump, that would have way, way more impact than anything that's going to happen with the Malcolm Gladwell book. Uh, and, and that's pathetic. But that's the reality. Because celebrity is everything in this day and age. And Dave Chappelle is a celebrity. And Dave Chappelle has provided cover for other people to give their real opinions, which for most people who have looked into this, and who have gotten over their initial emotional reaction and looked at the facts, they look at it and go, wait a minute, this is all bullshit. This didn't, there's no reality here. There's no evidence here. It doesn't make any damn sense. And that second clip we played from Chappelle is really about how little sense this makes. There's so many things about the allegations that, that do not add up. But the idea that Wade Robson, a guy uh, who has been interviewed Dozens and dozens and dozens of times by major outlets, including uh, on Jimmy Kimmel uh, on ABC in the years after his abuse and never said anything. I mean, Jimmy Kimmel joked with Wade Robson about where Michael Jackson touched him and he laughed because it was a joke. It was a joke. This was on national television. And now we're supposed to believe all these years later that Wade Robson was abused for seven years from the age of seven to 14, even though uh, it doesn't appear as he, if he was even in this country until the age of nine. And even though during several of those key years, he was dating Brandy Jackson because Michael Jackson had set Wade Robson up with Brandy, who is Michael Jackson's niece. And they dated for seven freaking years. I mean, come on, people. Really? Come on. Not be serious. I mean, there's just, there's no way. It just didn't happen. It's just, it's just flat out ridiculous. That's what it is. And Dave Chappelle understands this. Dave Chappelle uh, understands it and has had the balls to actually say it. And I think it's had an impact. Now, how much of an impact? I don't know. Dan Reed desperately tried to latch on to the the last bastion, as did Wade Robson. The last bastion of a false accuser is instead of defending your accusation is to attack those who are calling you out on the basis of how dare you, how dare you question a child sex abuser, abuse victim. How dare you? How you dare you question a victim? Well, wait a minute. You didn't prove that you were a victim first. So you're going to play that card? When you play that card with no evidence, now I know you're desperate and you're lying. Because that's all you have. And Reed did it with regard to the second clip we played from Chappelle. And I don't know. With, with Reed, you never know. Is he this dumb or is he this desperate? Or maybe it's both. But uh, the idea that Reed didn't understand 
that Chappelle was not mocking child sex abuse victims, but instead was mocking the idea that a boy could be molested by Michael frickin' Jackson for, uh, at that age and never tell anybody anything of any sort is mind-blowing. I mean, Reed is a dumb guy. So I don't know if he was lying or if he's just that dumb, but he actually tweeted out a clip. Now, this was interesting that he tweeted out that second clip on YouTube. It was interesting because Reed actually created a YouTube account in order to tweet out this video clip, which he mischaracterized, right? Well, what's interesting about this is Netflix forced him to take it down. The, 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 the video got deleted from YouTube that that Dan Reed had created and tweeted out. Now, what's interesting about this is Dan Reed's a filmmaker. So here he is violating Netflix's copyright rights uh, in a way where Netflix ends up taking it down. And what's really ironic and telling is that Leaving Neverland has done the same damn thing with other people. They have been incredibly aggressive, I believe inappropriately so, in taking down YouTube clips about leaving Neverland, because with leaving Neverland, there's a fair use issue because this is a, a public news uh, uh, topic that people are commenting on. And that's a, that is a loophole within the copyright laws. And so uh, Dan Reed, once again, showing himself to be a hypocrite, uh, showing himself to be a moron, and, and frankly, I, I also think showing himself to be uh, deceitful and a liar. Uh, so uh, those who have followed this know that this whole thing has fallen apart. The other thing that Chappelle did was, bizarrely, he gave the estate of Michael Jackson some more cover to really go after Wade Robson. They really took off the gloves this week. I mean, they went so far as to not just call Wade Robson a liar, but also to call him a lousy choreographer and said, boy, it's too bad you weren't better. We would have hired you for our uh, Cirque Soleil show. Too bad you didn't get the gig and you decided again to sue us. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what the Jackson estate said. And I'm like, wow, what took so long? Because uh, that was fantastic. And clearly they believe that the Chappelle comments have opened an opportunity for them. But Robson's reaction is is maybe the most absurd of all because Robson has also wrapped himself in the covering blanket of being a sex abuse victim. Uh, how dare you? He, he said, I, I don't care that Dave Chappelle doesn't believe me, but it's outrageous that he would attack child sex abuse victims. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty darn close. Okay, um, that would be suspicious under the best of circumstances, but under these set of facts, that's outrageous because... Wade Robson has no foot, not one foot, not a toe, not a toe to stand on when it comes to the issue of defending the rights of child sex abuse victims. Because if he's telling the truth, which he's not, but if he were telling the truth, he would be the first person we would point to and go, wow, you really let down all of the victims of Michael Jackson. Because obviously, if he did this once, he did it way more than once, which he did not, in my very strong opinion. But if that's if the narrative is remotely true, then Wade Robson, when he testified as Michael Jackson's first defense witness at his 2005 trial where he was acquitted of all 14 charges, that that was the moment when Wade Robson, as an adult, as an experienced adult who had had major high-profile sexual affairs with women, including Britney Spears, when he went in front of God and everybody, took an oath, and then, based upon his current testimony, lied blatantly and strongly that he was abused, that he was not abused by Michael Jackson, that prevented the 2005 accuser from getting a fair trial. And it allowed Michael Jackson to go scot-free. So Wade Robson has no, no remotely logical toe to stand on when it comes to this issue of defending the, the victims of child sex abuse. And yet that's all he has. Because he can't defend the record. He can't defend the facts. He can't defend the timeline. He can't, he can't defend anything. And he's not being forced to because the media, the media knows this isn't true. But they just they want this to go away. They, they're just like, this is one of those crimes better left unsolved, really, as they might say. And in, uh, in, this is Spinal Tap. Uh, that, that's where we are on this. 
you know, all right, all right, all right. Let's just move on, people. Move on. Nothing to see here. Yeah, yeah, we spent, uh, you know, several weeks destroying a dead man's uh, character and legacy and defaming him, but uh, we were probably wrong. But we're not going to admit we were wrong, and we're just going to pretend this never really happened. So that's where I see uh, this going right now. But um, the momentum is definitely on the side of the truth. Now, as far as momentum on the side of the truth of the uh, so-called Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal, there's going to be a, a tiny uh, bit of momentum, not nearly as much as there should be, in the next uh, week or so. Because as I have been uh, teasing for quite a while, uh, very well-respected author Malcolm Gladwell is out with a new book called Talking with Strangers. And in the book, which will be out on September 10th, there is a chapter that deals with uh, the Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal, which I've been studying, investigating, uh, telling the truth about when no one else would for the last seven or eight years in almost a full time job that has destroyed much of my life and much of my career. But I, uh, a story about which I am 100% positive I am right in its essence. 100% positive. And the chapter, which is entitled something like uh, The Boy in the Shower, uh, which is in reference to uh, the boy whose name is Alan Myers, although that name has never been made public in a major mainstream outlet until uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book. He does name Alan Myers as the boy in the shower that was allegedly seen by former Penn State uh, then graduate assistant Mike McQuarrie uh, back at the, uh, the turn of the century uh, at a date which I believe is still very, very wrong. Uh, allegedly seeing Jerry Sandusky naked in the shower with a boy for all of two or three seconds. And it's important to point out that his testimony is mostly what he heard, not what he saw through a mirror. What he saw was through a mirror in a shower from a very distorted angle for two or three seconds. This is his own testimony. And this is the... This is the heart of the whole case. The whole case revolves around this. Because without this, none of this ever gets... Out of, out of the batter's box. None of it. In fact, it didn't for two-plus years. They, it was investigated. They had one accuser. They're like, we can't get any verification. This guy's not credible. Uh, we need way more than this. And then all of a sudden, Mike McQuarrie falls in their laps under very suspicious circumstances, and he tells this story 10 years after the fact, 10 years after the fact, and the prosecutors, I believe, manipulate him. They exaggerate the story. And they put out a grand jury presentment in November of 2011 that lies, flat out lies, saying that McQuarrie had witnessed anal rape between Sandusky and a boy. People's heads explode. Uh, Paterno gets fired. The president of Penn State, Graham Spanier, gets fired. Uh, Gary Schultz and Tim Curley, two very well-respected administrators, effectively get fired. Uh, and they get indicted. And the, the whole world collapses. Jerry Sandusky is convicted seven months later without even one continuance under incredibly suspicious circumstances uh, with regard to the timing of NCAA and Penn State and Louis Free, who did the Free Report, all need this to be done very fast so that they can get out of conclusion before the next football season so that they can punish uh, Penn State as quickly as possible. And so... <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell's chapter, which is a book which I finally received this week, is pretty much exactly as I expected. Now, that's good and bad. <laughs> it's, it's good because uh, Gladwell absolutely vindicates the administrators and, and, by extension, Joe Paterno. And he absolutely raises questions about the case against Jerry Sandusky. He is not willing to go as far as I am, which is to say now, after having believed that Sandusky was guilty for a couple of years after the story broke, and then further investigating it and, and, and interviewing him twice in prison for over six hours and knowing who all the accusers are. And I'm one of a handful of people in the world who knows the names of all the 36 people who got well over $100 million from Penn State. And I know their backgrounds. I know their actual stories. I know how different they are from what uh, those who testified at trial said. I know how lacking in credibility they are. I know how, how much they, they read like science fiction, frankly. I mean, they, a lot of them make uh, Wade Robson and James Sapechuk story seem uh, rather credible, or at least uh, believable. Uh, and there's no evidence for any of this when there should be massive amounts of evidence. So um, I, that's pretty much what I expected. 
I was also most concerned with whether or not Malcolm Gladwell would do what he told me he was going to do, which was to back me up on the most important revelation that I have found in the case, which is that the, the date of the McQuarrie episode, which was already wrong once. It's so important to make sure that people understand this. It was already wrong once. When Joe Paterno was fired and even when he died, he thought, because this is what McQuarrie was saying, what the media was reporting, what the prosecution believed, he thought that that episode was March 1st, 2002. He died believing that the episode that destroyed his life and career was March 1st, 2002. By the time we got to trial, which was only a couple months later, that date had changed dramatically to February 9th of 2001. Now, when, that was the first moment in this case when my hair stood on edge, when I felt like, because I'm like, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're going to put all of this on a 10-year-old story where the witness gets the date, the month, and the year wrong and, by the way, thinks it happened after 9-11 when it actually happened before 9-11. Immediately, I'm going, bullshit. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Because the story doesn't make any sense off the bat. Because McQuarrie's story is he saw Jerry doing something sexual with a boy in a shower and he did nothing? He just left. He didn't identify the boy. He didn't beat the crap out of Sandusky. He didn't get the boy out of there. He didn't do anything. He did nothing. He, he didn't even make his presence known to Sandusky or the boy. That's absurd. That's absurd on its face. He's a six foot four, 235 pound young guy. Beat the crap out of an old guy like Sandusky who's naked at the time. It's ridiculous. And so when the date is that wrong, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. What, what's going on here? Now, this issue is a, a thorn in my side because I screwed up. I'm, this is the biggest mistake I made in the entire case because when I interviewed Sandusky the first time, I knew for sure, and I did not believe him uh, in anything. I mean, I thought he was a pedophile when I first interviewed him. So I was taking everything he was saying with basically a grain of salt, except when it, when it came to Joe Paterno and the, and the so-called Penn State cover-up. But the reality is that uh, I knew in my bones that Jerry Sandusky did not believe that the second date, February 9th, 2001, was possible. I knew that he knew that was not possible. And I should have put everything I had into that issue at the time. I did a very cursory investigation, uh, the details of which I'll share uh, maybe when uh, next week's episode when we're scheduled to interview uh, Malcolm Gladwell about his book. But, um, and frankly, everything I found didn't make sense. But I dropped it because I thought there's just no way the prosecution could be wrong twice about this. It's just not possible because I'm a conservative law and order pro-prosecution guy. There's just no way they could be wrong twice. Well, a year or so ago, I reinvestigated and I found, uh, yeah, they were wrong twice. And they were catastrophically wrong uh, the second time because the second time – uh, what I have now concluded and what Malcolm Gladwell has uh, backed up and, and essentially verified in his new book coming out is that the actual date was not February 9th of 2001. It was December 29th of the year 2000. And the reason why that is incredibly important is that we know for sure the date that Mike McQuarrie reported this to Joe Paterno because we have emails that prove it. And we know that date to be February 10th of 2001. So now we have a vastly, it's not just that McQuarrie blew it twice, which should, be, should blow his credibility out of the water right away. It's not just that he blew it catastrophically twice. It's now that we have a timeline that proves that McQuarrie did not see anything remotely close to a sex act. Because you don't wait five or six weeks between the time that you saw something 
and the time that you report it if you saw something or anything remotely close to horrific. You don't do that. The reason why the prosecution needed February 9th to be the date was because if McCreary sees Paterno on the morning of the 10th and this happened on the night of the 9th, then that shows urgency, right? That's logical. That shows, well, he didn't want to bother Joe Paterno late at night. Paterno's an old man. (laughs) He's Joe Paterno. It's reasonable that he sleeps on it. And the first thing the next morning, he calls Joe Paterno, says, can I come over? And he reports to Joe Paterno this horrible thing that he saw. That timeline made a semblance of sense. But December 29th to February 9th, February 10th, actually, the morning of February 10th, makes absolutely no sense. Except if you understand the facts surrounding what was going on on February 9th and 10th. And this is the part where um, I was disappointed that Malcolm Gladwell did not put this into the book. I understand he didn't have space. I mean, this is a fairly small chapter. It's a very well-researched book. He did a hell of a lot of research just for this one small chapter. I mean, I, I, would, I would venture to guess there's never been a chapter of any book he's done where he did more research per word uh, than this chapter on the Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky uh, situation. And so I fully understand he can't put everything in there. But there's, if there was one fact I wish that he had, it's that on February 8th and 9th of 2001, just before Mike McCreary goes to see Joe Paterno, something very, very, very important happened. And that is that the wide receiver's coaching job opened up at Penn State because Kenny Jackson left Penn State to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Mike McCreary was a graduate assistant. He had no job security, making no money. I don't even think he had health insurance. You're a nobody as a graduate assistant. You desperately want a full-time job. That job happens to be the same job Mike McQuarrie would get three years later, which shows, by the way, there's no goddamn cover-up because the first thing you do in a cover-up is – Mike, thanks so much for coming to tell us about this. Congratulations, by the way, on your brand new job as the wide receivers coach. And let's just keep this between you and I. None of that happened. He did not get the job, but it's the job he wanted and the job he would get when it opened up a second time three years later. So do do some logic in your minds, folks. If Mike McCleary goes to see Joe Paterno in the morning, Saturday morning, uh, February 10th, is it more logical that he went to go see Joe Paterno suddenly on February 10th because he saw something six weeks earlier in a locker room for three seconds? Or is it more logical that he goes to see Joe Paterno, the guy with the power to hire him for the new job, if he finds out on late February 8th or early February 9th, depending on when he read the newspaper, that there's a job open that he wants? Which is the more logical catalyst? Which is it? The, 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 what happened on February 29th or what happened on February 8th, February 9th that actually directly impacts him? I would submit to you that it's rather obvious that Oxum's Razor will tell you that the reason why he goes to see Joe Paterno and not the police, which is where you ought to go. If, if you saw a crime, if you saw child sex abuse, you go to the goddamn police. But the reason why you go to Joe Paterno is because there's a job opening. Now, I have theories as to... What was in McQuarrie's mind at this time? I think there's an offensive reason why he decides to go see Joe Paterno. It's to get the job. And then when that doesn't work out as what he had hoped for, because according to Sue Paterno, the meeting was incredibly short. It was only three minutes long. When, when it's clear to him he's not going to get the job, he needs an excuse for why he came over. And he decides that, okay, this is, this is, I'm finally going to tell Joe about what I saw with Jerry Sandusky. I also think it's quite possible that Mike never told Joe when this actually happened or Joe just misinterpreted because it was a hurried conversation. And logically, you think, well, why the hell would someone wait five or six weeks for this? You would never do that. You, it must have happened last night. And once Joe Paterno says it happened last night, that's, when that goes up the food chain, no one questions that because it's Joe freaking Paterno. I also believe that there's a defensive reason why Mike goes to see Joe Paterno on the the morning of February 10th. And that is that he had told his dad and his dad's boss, Dr. Dranoff, 
that he had seen this thing with Jerry Sandusky, and it bothered him. I have no problem with that. Supposedly, they had agreed that he was going to go see Joe Paterno. I believe McQuarrie, over that holiday weekend of New Year's uh, Eve and New Year's Day of 2000, changes his mind. Thinks, you know what, this is not that big of a deal. I don't need to get involved in this. Uh, Maybe I didn't understand what I thought I heard or saw. And he just lets it go. But then he knows that his dad and Dr. Dranoff are about to have a meeting with Gary Schultz, the, the vice president of Penn State who's the, in charge of the campus police. And he knows that they are going to ask Gary Schultz for an update on his report, which he's never made. So now he needs to get that report in there. Otherwise, he ain't getting the wide receiver's coaching job. He's going to get humiliated and embarrassed, and he might even get fired from his graduate assistant job. Wait a minute. Mike, why didn't you come to tell us about this? So there's all sorts of reasons to understand what Mike McQuarrie is really doing that has nothing to do with Jerry Sandusky having committed a a horrendous act of child sex abuse in a Penn State shower. There's a lot more than what's in Malcolm Gladwell's book, and I understand that he can't get into all of this, but... I have done an interview with Gary Schultz, which I've not yet released, the only one he's ever done. It's about 90 minutes long, in which we go into great detail about this date and why Gary Schultz knows that December 29, 2000 has to be the date and why February 9, 2001 can't be the date. And it has to do with the date of that meeting that Gary Schultz had with Mike McQuarrie's dad and Dr. Dranoff. And so Gladwell... Has, has done a great service in, in a, a mainstream fashion saying, hey, look, uh, you know, take a look at what Ziegler's done here. Uh, th- this date thing is very compelling. And if the date is wrong, as I say, there's no way, there's no possible way to, to conclude that Mike McQuarrie saw anything close to what <clears throat> the prosecution claimed that he did. And if McQuarrie didn't, then the whole thing falls apart because all of this, is based upon two things. There are two pillars of this case. Mike McQuarrie and Aaron Fisher, victim number one, the only accuser in this case for two years. And I referenced last week that Aaron Fisher also has massive problems. And in fact, he has some massive personal problems right now. I referenced last week that his wife had accused him of rape and assault on Facebook. Much to my surprise... I was able to make contact with his wife this week. Much to my surprise, she agreed to speak with me. She even allowed me to record the conversation. I spoke with her for 45 minutes. Now, I don't know for sure what's going to happen with all this, but I know that the person who I spoke to, uh, Aaron Fisher's wife, was very clear to me that she has left him. She's in the process of divorcing him. She has gotten a temporary restraining order. Technically, it's referred to something different in Pennsylvania, but essentially a temporary restraining order against him. She is fearing for her safety, and she's in an undisclosed location because she believes Aaron is dangerous, and I believe absolutely that he is. He's made death threats against me and other people involved in this case. Uh, She went into great detail about uh, the alleged rape, And the assault, she has photographs of her post-assault by Aaron Fisher. And she is planning on pressing charges. Whether she's actually done that or not, I do not know. Uh, But uh, in a rational world, in a rational world, this ought to make people go, what? Really? We're going to pin all of this. We're going to pin all this on Aaron Fisher, a guy who is a a dirtbag, Uh, and who has no credibility, whose story changed dramatically. His story makes no sense. He had three different timelines at trial. He claimed to have been sexually abused over 100 times by Jerry Sandusky by the time he got to trial, which was totally different than his original story. It makes no damn sense from a timeline perspective and from all sorts of other elements of this case. So we're going to rely on on this dirtbag and Mike McQuarrie. And by the way, Aaron Fisher and Mike McQuarrie apparently are soon going to share something much more than just not being credible witnesses. Mike McQuarrie also was divorced by his wife. So we are very close to the two pillars of this case, being rich, famous media heroes and having their wives divorce them. 
Now, that doesn't prove anything, folks, but come on. Come on. How many times? <laughs> what an amazing coincidence that two rich, they're rich, super rich, media heroes who are famous for being media heroes, having brought justice to this horrible, heinous serial sex abuser, Jerry Sandusky. How, how many times, right after that happens, do wives divorce those guys uh, under horrendous circumstances? And, uh, and you know, Mike McQuarrie's wife is a physician of some sort, and we have a, we have a bizarre note that she left for the people who bought their home after they sold it after she divorced him. And uh, in no uncertain terms, she refers to Mike McQuarrie as a massive liar. Now, she doesn't refer to him as a massive liar specifically in this case, but uh, this is also a bad dude. This is a guy who, when investigators came to him, thought that they were after him for having sent pictures of his penis to a woman, not his wife, through a Penn State phone. And so uh, the great irony of this whole thing is that Mike McQuarrie and Aaron Fisher are the real bad guys here, even though the media perceives them as being the heroes. And everything about this case is totally upside down. The white hats are wearing the black hats, and the black hats are wearing the white hats because the media screwed this up from the beginning. And Malcolm Gladwell's book, In a Rational World, would reopen this whole thing. And somebody in the media, maybe multiple elements of the media, would go, whoa, wait a minute, let's look at this again. Maybe we screwed this up. But that's not going to happen because we don't live in that world anymore. Unless Kim Kardashian had uh, tweeted about it and uh, been retweeted by Donald Trump. So it's nice. It's important. I do have at least one uh, USA Today reporter who is planning on uh, reporting about this. We'll see if that actually happens when it does. And I'm looking forward to interviewing Malcolm Gladwell. And I, I think he's done great work. On this, I do have some questions for him, which hopefully he'll be willing and able to answer. Uh, but it's not going to be earth-changing. It's not going to be earth-shattering uh, or, or world-changing. Uh, nothing at this point would be. Uh, but that's the world we live in. Uh, the, we're just not set up for this anymore. We don't correct our mistakes because it's not in anyone's self-interest to do so. Now, along these lines, i got to tell the story of having uh, taken sexual harassment training online this week. I did this because it's mandatory for uh, Mediate employees. This is a 45-minute video presentation. And i got to tell you, this was one of the scariest things I've ever gone through in my entire life, as far as where we are in society. Uh, We are so screwed. Uh, The best way I can describe this 45-minute presentation slash test uh, is that I actually felt incredibly weird to be a heterosexual man. I felt like being heterosexual is like the weirdest thing you can possibly be. Uh, that it's um, actually better to be uh, transgendered or so, all these other sorts of uh, genders that I don't even understand their definition. Uh, I mean, in all seriousness, the, the, this presentation would have been perceived as a parody about 10 years ago. And now it's very real. Legally obligated for all employees to go through this. And um, and it's not just the political correctness of it. It's not just the normalization of behavior that I perceive to be uh, awfully weird at best. I, look, I have nothing against people who have uh, different ideas of their own gender. More power to them. If it makes them happy, that's fine. I have no problem with it. But the idea that somehow, which we're getting very close to, that somehow there's honor in it or that there's something <laughs> – almost negative about being heterosexual is is just bizarre i mean it's and 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 really it is where we are it's really where we are it's just flat out ridiculous but that's but that wasn't the part of the video that bothered me the most the part about the video that bothered me the most was there were two different um rules if you will that uh, are inherently contradictory that i think blow open a massive loophole for people to um (laughs) to make false accusations and here they are. I, I could not believe that this was actual law uh, in, uh, in New York State. They actually say during this video that it is sex discrimination to not agree to be alone with a woman in a business environment because you are afraid of creating a false allegation. They actually say that. They actually say it's sexual discrimination to not agree to be alone with a woman 
It actually says in the presentation, if you don't want to be accused of sexual harassment, don't sexually harass anyone. Really? Wow, it's that easy. That's awesome. Now, that was stunning when I saw that. I'm like, really? You guys are that naive? So, so it's now a bad thing to protect yourself against the potentially false allegations. It's actually discrimination to not want you know, to do the Mike Pence thing and not want to be alone with a woman in a business environment. But here's where it gets really bat crap crazy. Later in the presentation, they tell the story of someone who, a temporary employee, by the way, which makes it even more bizarre because the incentives of a temporary employee are different than a full-time employee. They, they tell the story of a temporary employee who makes an allegation of sexual harassment against someone that's false. And she gets retaliated against because of the false allegation. Who's the bad person in the situation? You guessed it. The employer for retaliating against someone for making the false allegation. And they actually say in the presentation, as long as the person making the allegation believes that they were sexually harassed, then that's okay. It doesn't make it sexual harassment, but they cannot be retaliated against. Well, if you use your brain for a half a second, what does that mean? That means that you're protect, you're creating an incentive for someone to make a false allegation because one, you can't prove that they didn't believe it, right? So that's a threshold anyone can get over. Everyone can claim, well, I believed I was sexually harassed even though I actually wasn't. And if you can't be retaliated against, what does that mean? That means you're protected. You can't be fired. You can't be demoted. You can't be displaced, especially as a temporary employee. So the rules include a massive incentive for someone to make a false allegation while also preventing someone from protecting themselves from a potentially false allegation because It doesn't even come within the mindset of the people who made these damn rules that there could be a false allegation. And what does this mean? Well, now we've blown open a massive path for people to make the false allegations that those who made the rules don't even think is is theoretically possible. And I believe we've seen that in the Michael Jackson case, and we saw it in the Penn State case, because in those two situations, there's massive amounts of money. It's not just protecting yourself uh, at a job. There's massive amounts of money involved. And um, it was really, I was expecting the worst, but it was stunning to me just how ridiculous uh, this whole uh, situation has gotten. And I kept thinking, boy, this is really why Donald Trump got elected. And, and why he still has a chance of being reelected, because people can't stand this stuff. They, they, they realize that we have lost all sense of sanity, that we have lost touch with the gravitational pull of the rational earth. And while Trump is the worst person in the world to benefit from this, uh, I believe that he has and he may continue to do so because this has become embedded now. It is embedded now in everything about our culture and about uh, issues related to employment. A couple other things in our final moments here on this hour of the World According to Zig podcast. I have to mention the story of Tyler Skaggs, the uh, now deceased former pitcher for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim baseball team here in Southern California. He happens to have grown up in an area of Southern California very close uh, to where I live. Uh, He was a very good pitcher, and everyone thought he was a really good guy. And a couple months ago, he died suddenly in a hotel room on a uh, road trip for the Angels. And um, and at the time, I thought, wow, that's really weird. How, how does that happen? How does a guy that healthy, that young, suddenly die for no apparent reason in a hotel room? And, of course, there was an outpouring of sympathy. He was made into a hero. The Angels put his number on their jersey. They put his number behind their pitching mound at home. They had his mom very dramatically throw out the first pitch. It was win one for Tyler. It was all so dramatic and wonderful. And then uh, this past week, a couple days ago, we learned why it was that Skaggs actually died. And we learned that Skaggs died because he had mixed two illegal drugs with alcohol and had uh, essentially suffocated in his own vomit. 
Now, that, this doesn't make it any less tragic. It doesn't make uh, his accomplishments in life uh, any uh, less admirable or uh, worthy of praise. However, um, I believe that in a rational world, the way that his death is handled should be altered by this revelation. But it will not be. And even when I made this suggestion on Twitter, I, of course, got attacked because I was the bad guy. Uh, the reality is that um, much like the KTLA uh, Los Angeles news anchor, Chris Burroughs, who was also deified on KTLA after he died suddenly, although it was more obvious that that situation was not as perceived because he, he was clearly uh, a situation where he died in a, in a gay act that was also influenced by drugs. And sure enough, that's what occurred. And then once we find that out a few months later, you're not allowed to mention it because now you're t- talking ill of the dead. I'm sorry, folks, when you're honoring the life of somebody when they die unexpectedly at a very early age and they die at their own hands because of stupid behavior, you're at the very least enabling that. You're at least telling you make you're sending a message. You're sending a message to society and to kids. You know what? This isn't that bad. This isn't that dumb. Because if you die this way, we're still going to honor you if it's in our self-interest to do so. We're still going to pretend you're a hero. We're still going to say great things about you. And in fact, we're going to condemn anyone who dares to question you, who dares to criticize you. Well, that's that's dangerous. That's wrong. It's stupid. And maybe the most stupefying thing that uh, I saw was that it was widely reported that Skaggs' death had been ruled, quote, accidental. I, I actually Googled this and, and, and searched it on Twitter. News reports univer- almost universally referred to Skaggs' death having been ruled accidental. Like he accidentally got Two illegal drugs and massive amounts of alcohol in his system at the same time. That that was an accident. No, that was not an accident. That happened because of his own decisions. And it is, I'm not a drug user. I rarely uh, use a lot of alcohol. Uh, so it's hard for me to understand this. But there are people who fervently believe, and I believe most of these people are either drug users or past drug users, they firmly believe that somehow using drugs is no, and, and dying from it is no different than getting uh, like colon cancer, where you have n- no control over it. That's not true. Those are two totally different things. You have control. You have total control over whether or not you use drugs and alcohol. And you are responsible for your own death. If you do this in an irresponsible fashion, as Skaggs clearly did, and it really bothers me that we're now living in a world where not only does a guy like Skaggs still get honored, I mean, the 45 is still right there on the mound uh, at Anaheim Stadium, but you're actually the bad guy. I got called a bad father for criticizing Skaggs because I want to live in a world where we don't honor that kind of behavior. Absolutely insane stuff. Um, all right. Uh, I got to mention that obviously Hurricane uh, Darian is barreling down on the Bahamas as we speak, expected to make landfall uh, in uh, Florida soon. It's now a category five. It's massive. It's could be devastating. It looks horrendous. The only hope I have here is that there has been a phenomenon over the years that the very worst looking storms tend to break up at the last minute and it seems like the the, the storms that do the most damage are those that we, that strengthen at the last minute uh, so hopefully that's going to happen here um, but it looks really bad as of right now and i'm sure it's going to once again increase the uh, the warnings about the global warming and climate change even though it has nothing to do with that Uh, But that will be the perception. This week, there were new warnings put out by the the global warming alarmists, the religious cult that believes that somehow the world's going to all end very shortly. And what I once again found fascinating is that these warnings say that we're going to have disaster by 2050 and catastrophe by 2100. 2100. So disastrous by 2050 and global warming will be catastrophic, basically destroying life as we know it by 2100. Now, hopefully that won't be the case. Maybe it will be. I sincerely doubt it. But I find it fascinating that once again, just by coincidence, the predictions that these people are making will come to fruition at exactly the time after these guys are all either retired and or dead. 
Isn't that amazing coincidence that that's the way it works? Just by amazing coincidence, we're never going to have any accountability whether they're right or wrong. If they're right, by the way, they get credit for having tried to save the world. If they're wrong, they get credit for actually saving the world. This is a built-in foolproof grift situation. And um, I'm a global warming skeptic. I believe we could be going through climate change. We've gone through climate change many times before. Man could have an influence on it, but uh, just explain to me how it is that the glaciers in Yosemite melted 10,000 years ago. That's all I ask. Just explain to me how that happened. Uh, and no one seems to want to do that. All right, that'll do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. Uh, we will be doing another episode next week where we hope to speak to uh, Malcolm Gladwell about his new book. Uh, very much looking forward to that. Until then, uh, please make sure you share this via social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And do yourself a favor, And when, uh, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, one, two, one, two.